Hello, welcome to episode 11 of Finding Your Fearless, a Melbourne Vixens podcast hosted by Joe Weston. Finding Your Fearless is presented by Deakin University. At Deakin University, every single course is backed by industry experts. This means you can be confident you'll get the job you want with a degree employers want. Deakin University, progressive real-world learning. Today, I am joined by business leader Sam Moston AO, who has an incredible amounts of experience in sports governance. Sam was the first female to be appointed to the AFL Commission and currently sits on the Sydney Swans board. She is also a co-founder of the Minerva Network and a sustainability advisor. Enjoy this chat with Sam. Sam, thank you so much for joining Finding Your Fearless. Uh, where in Australia do I find you currently? Um, I am sitting in Sydney, in the inner west of Sydney, Joe, and I, um, I've been out once today. We're on day, I think it's 65 here in Sydney of um, the Sydney lockdown, so it's lovely to be able to chat with you today. Well, thank you uh, for joining me again. I hope you've had a little bit of sunshine. I'm also in lockdown in Melbourne and we've had some sun for the first time and it feels like spring is around the corner, which is a little bit tempting, I guess, given the circumstances, but still um, a bit of a booster. Now, I guess my podcast I host with the Vixens is called Finding Your Fearless. And I guess what does the word fearless mean to you? Goodness. Um, it's a really great question, Joe. Um, fearless, I guess, for me, in the context of, I guess, the um, the sports we all love and the the way I think about women generally, is um, it's a kind of it's a form of courage that puts out it puts our desires and our intent right out there and says we're, we're going to try and do things irrespective of the consequence because we believe that we've got the right to do it and that we're, um, uh, we want to do it. And sort of um, the fear of failure or the fear of um, criticism or the fear of, um, uh, of judgment is put to one side because our courage and our sense of purpose demands that we just do the thing that we're meant to do. So that's a, that's a long-winded way of talking about fearless, I think, um, particularly in the sports context. No, um, I love that. And before um, you came on, I had the pleasure of introducing you and you have a long list of achievements and I guess uh, career highs over what has been an amazing journey for you. But if we circle back, I guess, what was your very first job, perhaps fresh out of uni? So I probably have a long CV because I'm a lot older than you. So I'm at a different time in my life where I've had a chance to say yes to, to lots of things. So um but early on, I mean, I had the classic. This is this was sort of back in the um, really in the in the late seventies when I first started work. Before I was at uni, I worked as um, in a pharmacy. So I, my first you know, job to help pay for, for university was working in a pharmacy in Canberra. I went to the ANU, and um, I always love going to pharmacies now because it always takes me back to the very first paid job I ever had. Um, and but then my first job, uh, I. Uh, at university, I had a job as a researcher in the magistrate's court in Canberra. I was studying law, and I was lucky enough to work with the magistrates there to research a lot of the cases before them at the time. And then when I left uni, my first job out of uni, which was amazing and probably taught me a lot about social justice and human rights and um, and being a bit fearless, I think, mm-hmm. um, was working as an associate for Justice Michael Kirby. And he was then the president of the Court of Appeal in New South Wales. 
before he went on to be a high court judge. Um, but he also had such a breadth of um, of interest in things well beyond the law, in HIV, AIDS. He played a big role in the marriage equality debates most recently, um, but a real social justice human rights pioneer. And so to have that kind of job early in my career gave me a sense of what's possible um, when you really care about the world and the things you can do in the world. That sounds like an amazing introduction, I guess. You know, I think something like Laura can potentially be quite by the book, but when people take the personal aspect of something that can be quite rigid, there definitely is this huge opening about what is possible. Mm. But aside from that, I guess you probably have a little bit of a passion for sport given uh, where your career took you next. Were you yeah. a sporty kid? Did you like to play team sports, individual sports, um, or maybe when you were uni or when you were younger? So I was a sporty kid and um, I'm the oldest of four girls and my dad was in the army and we we moved around a lot with the army and um, found ourselves in places like South Australia and Victoria and Canberra and we, we travelled to the US and Canada when I was very, very young. Oh, wow. um, but as a family, I mean, growing up in those days, sport was just, it was just the essential part of your life as a kid. And so we learnt to swim very early on. We were very little when we learnt to swim. Um, we played tennis. Um, we, at school, at primary and high school, I played a lot of netball. I loved playing netball and I transitioned into basketball at the latter part of of high school, I'm a bit tall. I'm not tall. I'm not so tall that you know I claim, but I'm tall enough to to be a an effective player in a in a team of netball and basketball. And um and then um, I fell into rowing at university. So my first year of uni, I went to the um, information day at the ANU, and um, one of the women who was on the booth for the um, the ANU boat club just said, "You look like you've got the right physique to just really <laughs> love rowing." Did you row at school? I said, no, no, I had never rowed. Got in a boat um, on Sullivan's Creek going out to Lake Billy Griffin. And I just, in those first few strokes, I thought, this is a sport I would just love. And so I, I rowed competitively um, for the whole time I was at uni and then gave it up when it was time to kind of, um, I guess, grow up and make a decision about whether to, to do that more fully or to go on and do other things. So, um, so I, I, you know, I had lots of really great sporting experiences growing up and and I think it was always sort of part of how I thought about it, what it was to be Australian and to be involved in community and um, I've got really, really fond memories of all the sports I played. That's um, really lovely and I guess speaking of uh, fond memories, slightly off topic, I actually also lived in Canberra for a couple of years. I was a scholarship holder at the AIS and it was fresh out of high school so probably a similar uh, time in my life when you were also living in Canberra. I think the ACT does get quite a bad rap. I have some amazing memories from my time there, and I'm sure you do too. Um, have you been back since? Is it somewhere uh, that has a special place in your life? Yeah, it does. And you're right, <laughs> Canberra gets a real bad rap. But um, my parents still live in Canberra, and two of my sisters um, are in Canberra. So when we're not in lockdown, and they're not in lockdown, um, you know, we're fairly regular visitors um, back there, and it always brings you know a great deal of nostalgia for me. Um, you know, Canberra's changed a lot. Um, people probably don't realise that, but um, having spent many years there, um, 
you know, it's, it's, beca- it's a really interesting city. It was a really great city to grow up in because everything was so close. Um, magnificent sporting fields, um, you know, the, the lake itself, so my rowing experience. And when you're getting up as early as we had to, it was never more than a sort of a 10-minute quick drive to the lake. Whereas when you live in a complicated city like Sydney or Melbourne, when you're trying to get to boat sheds early in the morning, it's a, it's a big commitment of time. <laughs> um, so that, so that it was, I, I still I love it. I think the seeing the changing seasons is one of my favourite things about mm-hmm. Canberra. You always know when you arrive what season you're in, and um, and it has some of the most important national institutions, um, cultural and political and artistic. So, um, and and increasingly there's some really funky bars and and hotels and and um, restaurants. So, yeah, and I've got a very soft spot for for home and um, going back there when I can to see my my parents and family. I think it's got a lot going for it. Um, I guess so. Maybe you can talk to me about, I guess, your foray into the governance world of sport. I'm assuming that probably was a transition from the work you were doing um, at the magistrate's court. But in 2005, you were the first uh, female member of the AFL commission. I've heard a little bit about it, but maybe you can also enlighten everyone about what the AFL commission actually is, because I think it's talked about a bit, but there's probably not that much knowledge about what it actually does and what, I guess, role it plays in the league. Yeah, I've got, it's, um, I was very, very lucky um, to to find myself in that position in 2005 and it was kind of it was a long time after I'd, I'd worked in Canberra and I was I was working as an executive at Insurance Australia Group at that time and I received a call from a headhunter saying that they'd been asked to find 10 women candidates around the country to consider being the first woman to join the AFL commission oh. and w- would I be interested and they had a series of things that skills you had to have you had to have a Love of the game, which I did. I had never played it, but I, I loved the game. And, and a series of things had to be legally trained and understand um, the corporate world. And there were, there were a number of sort of preconditions. And so I put my hand up on the basis of it would be fun just to see where the process took me. And very, very lucky to be the last woman standing in that process to, to then be appointed in 2005. Um, and it was the first sort of significant board of any kind I'd sat on. And the AFL is a big industry. You know, it's a big sporting industry, but it's a big industry that touches the media and sports management and community um, and so many parts of um, of the commercial world that um, it was actually just, it's like sitting on a big board. But what the commission is, I'm trying to think about whether there's an equivalent that would be for, for the Vixens and for um, for netball and, and so the way in which netball is structured and where you have boards of Netball Australia and Super Netball and things like that. So this... The commission is the um, is the board um, that oversees the management of AFL across the country, and it's generally around about ten people who serve on the commission and um, look after the rules of the game, um, look after the allocation of the money. So it's a you know, really important job to Definitely. distribute the, the money of the game um, to make decisions about the expansion. So we made. Oh, I'm so sorry. That was my dog. <laughs> That's I'm okay. so sorry. That, this is lockdown life. I don't know if you need to edit this out. But it's, no, it's oh, fine. I'm sure my dog, Billy, would like to make an entrance, but she's locked yeah. outside. <laughs> so it's the, the AFL Commission is like the boards, the governing boards that sit over netball and, and other major sporting groups in the country. And the AFL um, Commission looks after things like the rules of the game, the um, 
where the money is spent around the game and, and how it's allocated to the club system and development. And and then there's a big job that the Commission played and I was really proud to be part of. There were, there were two aspects to it. One was expansion of the game to include two new new clubs yeah. and they were the um, GWS Giants and the um, Gold Coast Suns. So we expanded the game into two new markets and then most importantly, um, over a number of years, um, a number of us worked really hard to encourage the commission and the executive of the AFL to uh, agree to have a women's league and to get to a point where we could launch the AFLW in 2017. So they're the kind of big strategic issues that um, the AFL commission sits across amongst lots of other things. But it was a formative time for me in sport um, and sports management and sports governance to sit on the commission for almost 11 years and to see the impact you can have when you take a very strategic look at a sport um, and, and really listen to the community about what needs to happen in the sport. They are some major, I guess, moments in what has been an interesting history for the AFL over the last, you know, 15 to 16 years. I had Darcy Vessio on the podcast right at the start of the year, actually, when we were both uh, free as birds in Melbourne. And it was super interesting talking to her about, I guess, the feeling about what was coming up and that anticipation in the playing group when the murmuring started in, you know, in to whether there was going to be a fully-fledged competition. I guess it's nearly fully-fledged. I'm an Essendon supporter, so I'm obviously oh, very sorry. excited you know, there's I've... a team now. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, but if you're an Essendon supporter, generally you know, your team in the men's was out this weekend and so was mine, the Swans, we were both knocked out in elimination finals. So we've got to bring on the women's game to make us happy again. <laughs> Definitely. But I guess they are huge achievements for anyone in any field, especially, I guess, the expansion of the game, which was a really bold step. And I think having to back that in as the commission at the time, it probably would have taken a lot of courage, I guess, to stand by um, what you decided and what you had thought was the best for the game. Because I'm sure there were lots of people saying that the Gold Coast and Western Sydney are not the right spots for new AFL teams. That was certainly the case. I mean, there were lots of people saying um, you must have a team in Tasmania and that argument is now being raised again and there's mm-hmm. a a campaign to get a team into Tasmania and then the Northern Territory wanted a team as well. So they, they were really tough decisions and, and that's when you sit on those boards, you're faced with these very difficult moments where you have to um, stick by your decision. Um, and interestingly, with AFLW, which was, I think, was totally game-changing for the league. Oh, you know, it was a completely different character of, I guess, fearlessness or you know, having to be courageous. And um, it's interesting that you raised Darcy because... Um, Darcy has written about in a book that Sam Lane wrote called Raw. Um, there's a chapter devoted to Darcy and to each of the women who really played an amazing role, um, Taylor Harris and Daisy and Sarah Perkins and, and many others. And that book also tells about what the 10 years up to the launch, the final launch was really all about. And it, it started you know, actually with asking a woman to join the commission. So that sort of is the starting point because there were, until there was a woman on the commission that group of guys, you know, they loved the sport. They were very clever. They were very, um, they were good, good leaders of support, but they had no insight into why women would want a league and whether it was possible to create um, a league for women. And when I first joined, one of the things I committed to do was get more women on the commission. And over time, four more women joined the commission um, in subsequent years. And then women started to approach me who played the game mm. to say, would you start to raise the issue of women's football 
in the commission in your meetings and you know, we, we need a voice in there and will you help us be that voice? And they were fearless because these were women I'd never met before. Uh, one of them, Debbie Lee, who was the most extraordinary advocate, was just last week elevated into the ASL Hall of Fame and the first woman to have that honour. And you know, Debbie just said, come and see us play, come and talk to us and listen to what it is that we want. Um, and they'd never been able to do that with the men on the commission. And so it just tells you that change takes a lot of steps and lots of, I guess, courageous steps by many. And one was the decision to, to bring a woman onto the commission and the next was to then for us to listen and to really engage with those, those early pioneers. And they're the heroes of that story and their fearlessness to continue to fight for a game um, despite terrible odds and you know, fairly poor treatment along the way by guys who didn't think they deserved it. Um, and they won and they convinced enough people. And then, of course, what's turned turned out to be this remarkable addition to Australian rules football is driving some of the greatest commercial and community games than any other decision could have done for Australian rules football. So it just goes to show that those, those big, fearless decisions actually can often be the ones that, that you know, can make the biggest change. And sometimes that jump just seems so big when you're staring down the barrel of it but it's just those little steps in the lead up which help chip away and I've read Sam Lane's book Raw and it is amazing it's you almost get excited whilst you're reading it because you get taken on the journey in that lead up to the actual launch and then that first game that you know sold out with crowds you know trying to break down the walls down at Princess Park it's just um it's definitely going to be an iconic moment in Australian sporting history Yes, I guess a way. It is, and it, you're right to say it's all those small things, and um, but everyone taking a little act of courage on the way, and and knowing that if someone will listen, that the next step is taken. And um, I, that's what I say to mostly to you know to women, you know, don't ever be frightened to use your voice um, to raise the things that need change, because if you can get someone to listen who can do something about it and take you with them, then that's that is how change can often happen. And you um, recently, last year, have become the president of the CEW, which is Chief Executive Women. I had met a few of the women involved at a function we had in Perth um, when I was on a Diamonds tour a couple of years ago. And it always fascinates me, I guess, between the parallels of, you know, women who are in really high positioned in very important companies and elite athletes in terms of, I guess, especially those probably more male-dominated sports. I feel very fortunate to play netball, which is a you know a female-led sport, so perhaps we don't have as many barriers in that regard. But it was so interesting, I think, to see um, you know the uh, similarities we have uh, in terms of not the day-to-day, but the mentality you have to have. I guess what is your vision for the CEW for the next few years? So um, thank you. That's a lovely reflection on sort of um, why we come together and, and and certainly for Chief Executive Women, it's a way to get, and it's been going for about 35 years, started out in a very small group of um, business women who just felt like they were outside the system that was dominated by men at the time and they just wanted to collect and support one another and share stories and um, and be a network for one another. Um, and women like Carla Zampati were part of that. Those early days, mm-hmm. um, and sadly, you know, Carla passed away quite recently. But they were they were businesswomen who um, were really pushing the barriers of business at that time as women. Um, and so, thirty five years later, we're now um, um, just we're just taking our next almost two hundred 
um, members. So we're just oh. over 800 women across the country. And we've, we've taken a view to expand into lots of different areas where women are excelling and having influence. So not just in business, but in the not-for-profit community, in sport, um, in um, in science and technology, in, in medicine and all sorts of things. So the, the mix of women is, is getting to be quite different now. But what's great about it is that we still need networks of women to ensure that the messages about why gender equality, why women in leadership positions um, in, in anything, any industry matters and to have a collective voice to advocate for more change and more respect. And the members today um, do a huge amount of that and, and increasingly want to work with um, younger women to ensure that those pathways to leadership and the opportunities to to have you know great careers um, and and to lead if, if if young women want to can be supported. We have a really strong scholarship program and a leadership program where those women who've been through those become the connect members and they, they become uh, members of a different kind of member who can join in with the CW members to continue those relationships over time. So it, it becomes a really big network of, of just women who support others and um, and. We do. I think we do really good work in ensuring that the the message about women and women as leaders doesn't get lost, um, and certainly doesn't get lost through COVID, when so many decisions are being made about our future. That where the future of women have got to be, has got to be taken into account. I think that's phenomenal, and hopefully, I guess for years to come, that network and ability to communicate as a group, and I guess have advocacy in the corporate world is going to be really important. I guess mm-hmm. speaking of networks, um, the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast was um, your involvement with the Minerva Network, which you are one of the co-founders of. I'm part of the Minerva Network. I guess maybe you can um, talk to, I mean, what it is, where it came from and where do you see it going in the future? Um, I love talking about <laughs> Minerva Network, Joe. So thank you for um for taking us to that story, and I'm really glad that you're part of our, our network. Um, I, I hope it continues to be a place where where you feel supported and and know that there are uh, women wanting great success for you, uh, well beyond your playing career um, into into the other things you want to do with your life. And it started with a very simple set of things that happened to a couple of us. Um, we were uh, Christine McLaughlin, who's the chair of Suncorp and a big backer of netball. I have um, Christine before. She was actually at that CEW event in Perth, I think. I think it was her. Well, it probably was. She, it probably um, was. She gave me her business card when she worked at ANZ. So she's definitely been an advocate for female athletes for a long time. <laughs> she has. Yeah, she's it's Christine. She's one of my oldest friends, and we were at university at ANU oh, together, wow. and. We, she graduated a year before me and we sort of lost touch with each other for a few years and then we found ourselves working in similar companies and we're just, we're great friends and, you know, I'm from Canberra, she's from um, country New South Wales, uh, right on the border of um, New South Wales and Victoria and you know, she grew up loving Aussie rules just like I did. So we, there's lots of things that connected us and um, we were, at the end of the Rio Olympics, we were talking about what had happened to or you know, the fact that women again had had great success with gold and we were thinking about the rugby sevens you know a, a team that didn't exist before going to Rio and coming back as gold medalists and that the men hadn't done so well and we kind of wondered what those women athletes who had performed at the highest level um, in Australia who was actually looking out for them and thinking about their post um, sports careers and 
um, whether like the men who typically get high-paid gigs on television as commentators or uh, are picked up by investment banks. And a whole lot of things seem to happen for the guys that do well in sport. Um, and we were we were really curious about what would happen with these women coming back from uh, from Rio, and then women who were playing for Australia in the non-Olympic sports. So our women cricketers and our soccer players and. And because of that curiosity, um, Christine really was a driving force. She began to talk to a few of those athletes who revealed that nothing much was happening. And that, that apart from that moment after they'd won, there wasn't this net, unlike the men, the, there wasn't a network that was clicking in to see if they um, had jobs or um, had speaking gigs that they could, they could um, receive payment for, all those kind of things. So we got together with another a broader group of women who we knew just to say, do you reckon we could create something? fairly loose at the beginning, which would be business women who want to align with um, elite sports women and do a kind of mentoring and friendship arrangement where we're available to support um, those younger women and show them what we've done with our careers and open doors, provide mentoring, um, provide um, for all the women that we could get to um, a series of um, events and that they've turned into um, virtual events now, but getting together and getting experts to come in and talk about things like financial security into the future or speaking skills or how to remain resilient through lockdowns and lots and lots of topics. And it has just grown and grown and grown. And so um, we got our name fairly quickly. Um, we looked around at who were the great um, gods that we could call on, like Nike had already been used in sports. So um, one of our, our founders, Sue Cato, looked up um, the sort of the god of strategy, and it was Nike. Uh, it was uh, Minerva. So she's the she's the god of um, strategy and warfare. And we thought well, that that sounds like a good thing to have. So we'll have we'll have Minerva, and that's how Minerva Network began. We just started with a group of um, business women who wanted to to um, offer assistance to to women like you, Joe, you know, who leave it out, you know, leave everything out on the court or everything out on the game and then um, might wonder about what it is you do next and how those pathways open up and be thinking about your future. And we have a mentoring arrangement, um, but we also have this broader network where we just support one another. And, and interestingly, the athletes themselves have become a highly connected group and follow each other and um, they share a lot of love on social media. And, and we now see our athletes everywhere in, in netball um, through through your experiences. And, of course, we had athletes at the Olympics and now athletes at the Paralympics. And the athlete I mentor is Maddie Di Rosario. So I was a screaming wreck the other night um, watching <laughs> Maddie medal. in Tokyo get a gold medal for the first time after four Olympics. You know, she went to Beijing as a 14-year-old and um, this is her fourth Olympics so her first gold after many bronze and silver medals, Amazing. but there was her gold. And to watch her and to know who Maddie is as, as a woman and what her hopes and dreams are for what, whatever comes and to know that we've got these connections and um, and that we, we get to, to talk to you all and learn about you all, it means as much to the business women as I think it does to the athletes. So we, we just want it to grow and grow. Um, we look for sponsors to help us put on bigger events, and we um, we talk to a lot of corporates about opening up pathways for athletes if they want jobs, and you know we just we're there for for you guys, and um, you know we think that's a, that's a pretty neat thing to do, and we get a lot of joy out of it. 
Yeah, we, um, we're very lucky, I think, to have a group like you in our corner as female athletes because uh, most of the time we're pretty good at trying to do everything ourselves, but it is an amazing, mm-hmm. I guess, feeling to have someone you can reach out to if you, if you need help, if you need a connection. So I'm hoping if there's anyone listening that isn't a part of it that probably is elig- eligible, uh, yep. they'll reach out and um, join up. Just jump on the website. <laughs> Very easy to find us and we're on social media, we're on um, Twitter and Instagram and the team would love to hear from any of your um, sports colleagues that are listening who, who would think that would be helpful. And as you say, I mean, you you are all very, very skilled at, and you're very focused and you're driven. That's what's made you such great um, elite athletes. Um, and so we know that about you and all we want to do is provide another set of opportunities and support for things that might be in different fields and in different connections and just play our role in saying thank you for everything you've done for your sports and make sure that you're given that respect and the opportunities that often the men had as they as they um, were, were noted as, as sporting icons. We just think the same should be happening for the uh, women. Now I have a couple more questions for you. And they sort of correlate, I guess, to the old adage that sport and politics don't necessarily mix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess recently we've seen this initiative called the Cool Down launched. Um, yeah. I personally am part of the Sports Environmental Network, which does, um, I guess, similar work with the um, governing bodies of sport. But I guess this is about... Um, how global warming is affecting our ability to participate in sport as um, temperatures continue to rise. I guess I'm interested in your thoughts about, you know, I guess advocacy, as you've said, in your younger years and how you see athletes being able to feel comfortable voicing their opinions on issues that matter matter to them and matter to most people. Such a great question, Joe. Such an important matter. Um, and I'm lucky enough to chair the Climate Council and have spent the last 10 or 15 years since becoming aware of the climate issue through uh, working for an insurance company and understanding where these big, big events were taking us um, and taking us rapidly. So um, that climate story is, is the big story of our future. And so it, to me, it's less about the politics and more about the fact that um, everyone, I think, who has a voice and has a platform and has felt the impact of climate change in the things they do should have the right to be able to share that. And you know, we are a sports-mad country and there's been a lot of resistance to talking about climate change and accepting the reality of it. But we do love our sports stars. And when, when sporting uh, people start talking about the things that they've seen, that you've seen, and you're, you know, what you, how you've engaged with the environmental issues of our time, and then can actually talk to how these changes affect our ability to play sport. You know, that's a whole new channel into the public that gives people who don't have access to science or think of this as something that's, um, that's just about activism a completely different way of thinking about how real this is and why it does matter. And so I think sport is, a, is amongst one of the most powerful ways we can we can actually bring the community, the Australian community with us to understand why a net zero future is so important and why we're not just talking about some theoretical issue. That I know you'll, you'll have examples, but and I know the Cool Down movement is all about this as well, that we've got to understand that there may come a time when kids who were um, wanting to start playing sport at the time I was when I was little, jumping into a pool or on a tennis court, it may get too hot to do that 
in the summer months or it may be the our courts may get too hard to be safe to play on. Or as um, you know, Shane Warne jumped on this um, a couple of years ago when he tweeted out that he'd suddenly realised that um, there were half a billion potential cricket players across India and Sri Lanka who might not ever be able to play cricket if, um, if climate change impacted um, those countries and took away the grounds that could be played on the weather was too extreme. And you know, these are the really practical impacts of what happens in a changing climate. And so I think when, when sporting stars line up and actually help us help communities understand what's at risk, it cuts through all of the politics and it cuts through the science and just says, do we want to, do we want to live in that kind of world um, where, we, where we can't play sport the way we always have or where um, heat or any of the features of climate change change that forever? Or do we want to do things now that might give us a chance to, for you know, your generation and for children that come um, along in the next generation to have the same enjoyment um, of, of our world that we all had? So I think it's I think it's one of the great things that you do, mm. and I'm so I'm so pleased that you feel um, the way you do about the environment, and that so many of your your sporting colleagues around the country have now really found a voice and said, you know what, we've got a stake in this, and we'll talk too. It's I think it changes so much of of, of what can be done and how Australians um, will think differently about this and begin to you know think less politically about it and think more um, practically about right, let's go on and work out what we're going to do together. It's definitely a change of track, I think, about looking at something which affects so many people, especially in Australia. And I think that is one of the reasons why hopefully it will be quite powerful in encouraging just even small changes from individuals and hopefully larger changes from people who can have a bigger impact. I've got one more question, Sam, um, for you, because I know uh, you do have quite a busy schedule. It's about the AFL again and probably your work on the commission um, as you said before, I guess the AFL does reach quite broadly and it is quite a big uh, commercial juggernaut, I guess. When, um, I know you have a bit of experience, I guess, in um, uh, corporate governance and other, I guess, corporate affairs. I'm curious as to what the process would be, you know, when the AFL chooses to weigh in on social issues. Mm. Um, and how I guess they make the call as to you know where um, they can have impact or where they're potentially crossing a line and involving themselves in something which people would be potentially um, affronted by. Mm. It's a um, it's a really tricky question. Well, more tricky for the sports codes themselves and the governance of sports generally because. Again, this is where you get politicians saying they say sports and politics shouldn't yeah. shouldn't match, but actually every politician will claim a, a great superstar sports person in the moment where they want a photo op or they want to welcome yeah. them back from the Olympics or whatever it is. So I I don't buy the idea that um, the sports community doesn't have a right to enter into discussions on things that matter to us as a society. Mm. And I think again, in the same way that sports and climate has come together, there's a long history of moments that have defined debates globally that sports have led us to, um, whether it's around racism um, and you know, not just racism experience in sport, but calling out racism and using the power of sport to, to look at things and to run an anti-racism campaign. Um, I'm a, a good friend of, of uh, Craig Foster. Um, we do a lot of volunteer work together and I just watch what Craig does in both the racism, the anti-racism movement, but the support for refugees. And 
he takes a whole lot of people from his sport, from soccer, um, and and gets them to think about the, the world game and who plays the world game and how our lives are such a lottery of where we end up and how lucky we are to live in this country. But if you were born in Afghanistan and played as a woman for the, the national soccer team and suddenly you know, the, your government changes and you are taken over by the Taliban and you know, you're a target, you know, what is the world's response to, to that crisis? And that's why sport has managed to, to get quite a few people out of Afghanistan just in recent days. Um, so whether it's racism or those big social moments, um, I think same-sex marriage was a was a great moment where sport mm. stood up for pride in sport, and I've actually got my pride in sport um, uh, Swanee socks on today, <laughs> strangely. Um, you know, and the Swans here in Sydney uh, march in the um, the annual Mardi Gras parade. Um, women's rights are clearly, you know, through the various women's leagues, and I'm sure netball chooses its moments to to stand up on things that really matter, and I think the decisions that are made by governing bodies have got to reflect, they've got to lead, but also reflect the community of people that support the sport and particularly the athletes within the sport. And all the ones that um, I was involved in while I was at the AFL about um, standing up for um, Adam Goods and for um, actually calling out racism against mm-hmm. First Nations players, um, the, the rise of the women's game and, and support for, um, for same-sex marriage, those things all were debated by the commission and ultimately came out on the side of this is what our athletes want us to do, these are important matters, um, we'll, we will throw our weight behind those that um, we're advocating and keep, keep alongside the community. Um, and different sports have different causes and, and seek to, to have a voice. Um, but I think that's how, that's how Australian communities often learn about these things is, is through a sporting lens. And um, I, I think governing bodies have to be careful not to step into things that are beyond um, what the people in the sport want or what the um, what the community might expect. But you'd never want to be behind community opinion. You always want to be there mm-hmm. helping to, to lead and to support what's going on in our society. And sport is just one of the most powerful ways of doing that. So it can be tricky, but it doesn't. this is back to your where we started with fearlessness. Um, it's not for governments or for politicians or others to say to sport what you can and can't do. Mm. You represent a community. There are big things that always need our advocacy and um, and stepping up for those things and bringing the community with us is is a great power. Is one of the great powers of sport. Um, so it's um, I think we'll see lots more of it. And in fact, the 2023 World Cup for women's soccer that we'll co-host with New Zealand already has um, a human rights component to it and a climate change component to it mm. about being a, um, a a competition that will honour human rights in sport and we'll um, build infrastructure facilities that are, are going to be the best from a, an environmental point of view and it wouldn't surprise me if the Olympic Games in Brisbane um, don't have a, by that stage don't have a really similar focus on the things that will matter to our, our world and our communities by that time. I think that's a really empowering answer uh, to my long-winded question and sport is probably one of the most accessible vehicles, especially in Australia, for um, advocacy and some of the issues that come up across um, the public. So thank you for your insight, Sam, and thank you for joining me on Finding Your Fearless. Um, I think you've just had such an amazing career to date, and I think it'll be inspiring for so many people listening, just not in the sporting space, but also in the corporate world. So thank you again. 
it's been a joy talking to you, Joe, and love your podcast. And um, I just I, I just want to watch great athletes like you thrive and have a, a wonderful future. So um, it's been wonderful to chat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Finding Your Fearless. Finding Your Fearless is presented by Deakin University. Just like the Vixens, Deakin University is fearless in its approach to learning. I'm currently studying a Master of Communication and I'm absolutely loving it. Deakin University, progressive real-world learning.